0: This is 50 Shades of Green by Climate Group, your monthly climate podcast exploring all the essential news and views from the U.S. and around the world. I'm Phil Kehoe. Today, we're doing a deep dive into COP28. What does this iteration of the U.N.'s annual climate conference mean for the future of climate action? First, Climate Group's Katie Lanagren will join with Champa Patel. Executive Director of Governments and Policy at Climate Group to give us a recap of the conference and provide insight on the role of NGOs and subnational stakeholders in the decision-making process. Then, I'll speak to John Morton, Managing Director and Head of Americas at Pollination Group, a specialist climate change investment and advisory firm, to discuss the role of climate finance in shaping the global transition to net zero. How are NGOs and subnational governments shaping the conversation around climate change at the global level? And what can we take away from the outcome of COP? Climate Group's Executive Director of Governments and Policy, Champa Patel, is here to tell us all about her experience on the ground and perspective on what to take away from this year's climate conference. Welcome, Katie and Champa, to 50 Shades of Green.
1: Hi, Champa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So you are just back from COP. Can you talk a little bit about how this COP was different than previous years? It felt really different because, as you know, we work with state and regional governments.
2: So, for example, in the U.S., that's California, Maryland, for example. And when you go to COP, you know, the state and regional governments are there, but they're not really part of the formal program. And this year, for the first time ever, there was a local climate action summit which brought together all the mayors, the governors, the premiers, the first ministers, to have a conversation about what can be done at the subnational level. And there's so much positive action taking place at that level, that it was great to have that formal place in the agenda. So that felt very different. And it felt like people were talking about the role of subnational governments a lot more, really understanding that they're, you know, often in a, if there's an emergency, climate emergency, they're the first line responders. You know, they're on the front lines of what's happening, whether it's heat waves, droughts or flooding. So for that importance of what they're able to do to save the communities that they're there for was really exciting and inspiring to see. And how did you see that play out
1: on the ground? So
2: I think we saw a number of concrete initiatives. One is something that's called the CHAMP initiative which is essentially where national governments commit to working with their subnational governments in order to, you know, make sure that they're part of the NDC process. This is the process by which governments set out what they're going to do in order to meet their mitigation goals, but also their wider climate action goals. It was exciting to see that over 70 national governments endorse that and pledge to work closely with their subnational governments. That's a really positive move forward. We want to see more of that because national governments can't do this by themselves and subnational governments can't do it by themselves. What's really important is that they work together. So that was a really interesting development and I hope that's one that we can work on to capitalise and take forward next year. So a second positive step, the under two coalition is part of a constituency called the local government and municipal authorities constituency. This is the formal way in which we try and influence the official COP proceedings. And for the first time through that process, what we've been able to do is insert language on the importance of working with local governments, with states and regions, with cities in the official text. So in the global stock take and the global goal on adaptation that were released today, we see clear references to multi-level action. That's a massive step forward. So now we have that recognition. It's really important that we maintain the pressure to translate that into implementation.
1: Now that you've seen the report and you see there's more about the local government, but what is your view on the success or failure of the COP overall? So I think it's fair to say it's been
2: a mixed bag. On the one hand, you know, fantastic progress made on the role of subnational governments who we at Climate Group work very closely with. But on the other hand, if you look at the language on fossil fuels, first time ever that there's explicit recognition that we have to transition away from fossil fuels. That's really, really important. And that should be noted. But at the same time, no commitment to phase out, which is actually we have to face, we are running out of time, and we need to phase out and away from fossil fuels. So it's really disappointing that The text didn't go as far as that, but it was probably felt that that was a compromise that they could push through at this stage. So overall, positive to see fossil fuels explicitly recognised as part of the problem and the need to transition away from them, but a little bit disappointing that we didn't see the phase out, that we really wanted to send that clarity of message that we need this to happen now. I think a big missed opportunity is, despite the ambitions that were set out, there just really wasn't enough information on where the financing will come from. And the level of transition that's needed and the scale of what has to be done has to be financed. And developed economies bear a certain responsibility for this historically and a moral responsibility to make sure that they invest in and fund the transition for developing economies. And I think that conversation was quite thin on the ground. So despite there being enormous amounts pledged, during the conference, including, you know, 700 million US dollars to set up the loss and damages fund. At the end of the day, it doesn't even come close to the amount of money that's needed. And there wasn't enough substantial discussion on where that money will come from. And I think that's a job left over for next year for us to tackle.
1: Thank you. That's all so interesting. And we really appreciate you sharing. What are your top line key takeaways from COP this year?
2: I think my takeaways are that the importance of subnationals is recognized, but it's a first step. We have to make sure now that we move to implementation. The multi-level action is not just a commitment. It's not just words on paper. It actually comes to bear fruit. I think the second takeaway is we haven't won the war on fossil fuels. The presence of oil and gas lobbyists at COP, you know, you can see their influence in parts of the text, particularly the sections on the use of transition fuels, There is still work to be done to make it clear that we have to phase out, and we have to phase out now, and that battle will still continue. And I think the other major takeaway is we have to find the money, because it doesn't matter how ambitious your targets are if you cannot finance the transition, and we need to finance that transition for it to be real.
1: Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing this information. This has been really, really informative, and we appreciate it. Thank
0: you. What role does the private sector play in catalyzing climate finance? And how has the role of the UN's annual climate conference evolved over time to adapt to changing global perspectives and priorities? Next up, I speak with John Morton, head of Americas Apollination Group, about how conference attendees are leveraging newfound political momentum and capital to galvanize cross-sector action and come to an agreement on the future of global climate policy. So happy to welcome to Fifty Shades of Green, John Morton, Managing Director and Head of Americas at Pollination Group. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh,
3: Pleasure to be here, Phil.
0: To kick us off, I think it would be great for the people listening at home to get a a bit more of a sense about yourself. And if you could tell us a bit more about your, your background and how you came to be in this position at Pollination.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in the field of what we now consider to be climate finance for all of my career, essentially 25 years or so. You know, we used to call it environmental finance, sustainable finance, uh, i now refer to it broadly as climate finance and i've had a uh, you know positions and perches working on this issue from from development finance institutions like the world bank to management consulting firms i worked in private equity after business school for an emerging markets private equity fund focused on environmental infrastructure investing i've worked in philanthropy on this issue with the pew charitable trust and i've spent nine of the last i guess uh 14 years in in government as a political appointee under the Obama administration, two years with the Biden administration. During the Obama years, I was, a, um, I was the chief operating officer at the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, which is now called the Development Finance Corporation. It's the private sector lending arm of the World Bank seeking to support investment into developing countries. And we were very heavily focused on renewable resource investments in energy, water, food, agriculture, et cetera. And then I spent the last two years as President Obama's senior Senior director for energy and climate change at the White House, and then under Biden, I was uh, I served for the first two years of the administration as Secretary Yellen's climate counselor at the Treasury Department. Really fascinating role it was the first first time that role had had just been created, uh, and that role was about really elevating climate within the Treasury Department and kind of injecting greater ambition and focus on climate change across the Treasury Department's tools and resources. Fascinating couple of years. I returned to Pollination. I've been with the firm for the first year of its life in 2020 to 2021. And I returned just in February of this year. And Pollination is a global advisory and investment firm focused on climate change and, and nature-positive transitions, which means, you know, we work with corporates, financial institutions, governments, and occasionally large nonprofits on uh, setting and implementing what we consider to be best in class or high ambition transition strategies toward a lower carbon footprint and, and posture for those businesses. And we see that as essential because businesses are both have climate risk embedded in their current operations, but we also see tremendous economic opportunity for those businesses and industries that take in this transition. That's where I am, and I, I currently am the head of the Americas, actually. We had a bit of a restructuring over the last couple of weeks, so now I run the Americas practice, which includes all of our work in the United States and all of our work from the United States focused on developing economies and emerging markets. Wonderful. So you were on the ground
0: at COP28. As it's happening right now, I think we're sort of getting into the tail end where people are coming together to discuss what's happened over the past two weeks and what to expect in a new global climate agreement. I would love to hear more about your experience. Uh, What are some of your key takeaways in general and specifically in the realm of of climate finance what do you think we can expect from cop28 over the next year or so based on the conversations that you had uh, at the conference
3: yeah so you know i was there for i was there for 6 days i have just just left i'm currently not there but just departed uh, i guess 36 hours or so ago let's put cops in context for a second here there's been 28 of them now right this was cop28 i've been at i've been at 6 of them over the last uh, maybe 12 years so i'm not a, i'm not a regular but this wasn't my first rodeo either across the six that I've been to for the, over the last decade and change, they've really, really changed. You know, they used to be relatively small kind of government-led negotiations around very technical text related to commitments that countries and were making to take action on climate change. Of course, the, the, the kind of North Star of the COPs over the many years has been the Paris Agreement, which was negotiated in 2015 and came into force in 2017 during a time that I was at the White House actually and that was part of my my responsibility was bringing that agreement into force which was a quite a quite an effort over the years what they've evolved into minority negotiating session around issues related to technical agreements around things like how to manage An emerging carbon market and how to ensure interoperability of carbon markets across jurisdictions, really key, key issue, very technical in terms of how how the negotiators are are dealing with and and grappling with some of the complications of that issue. So this year there were, you know, reportedly 70,000 people on the ground, and I can tell you only a small number of those were government negotiators. The others were everything from kind of entrepreneurs and small businesses showing their latest technology breakthroughs to large corporations that were, frankly, equal part, sometimes greenwashing and equal part making solid commitments. And you have to be careful to distinguish between between the two as you're walking around and speaking with representatives from both of those types of companies. There are large financial institutions who are brokering deals, announcing new partnerships and, and strategic initiatives. And so... You know, a COP is almost a week-long and 10-day-long kind of part trade fair, negotiating session, corporate commitment, and highlighting deliverables that are often prepared specifically for the COP. So it's become a very, very interesting and useful forcing function for corporations and financial institutions to make commitments about what they're going to do over the next year or two. So
0: many moving parts, it's oftentimes a bit overwhelming in terms of The amount of action and the amount of people that are there and all of the deal-making and and the brokering and even internally to people's own companies and and their organizations and subnational governments, I think there's been a lot of great movement. In terms of from what you experienced as well as from Pollination's perspective, what do you think still needs to be done to come away with a positive notion, a positive uh, agreement, something substantive? for climate action coming out of the conference this year.
3: Well, so, I mean, I think as we speak, they're still negotiating the kind of final wording on the on the COP outcome, right? And so there are very, very late nights and, you know, very harried negotiators that are seeking to, you know, cross, cross T's and dot I's on a couple of key issues, such as, you know, what type of commitment will the UAE be able to put forward as it relates to a fossil fuel, either phase down or phase out? Will there be timelines associated with those outcomes or not? There's a big question around Article 6, which is the article in the Paris Agreement, which talks to essentially this issue of how carbon markets are managed and integrated going forward, kind of what counts, what doesn't, how their jurisdictions, different jurisdictions are able to uh, record and uh, and take credit for or not carbon reductions, emissions reductions from projects. Very key things that essentially provide the infrastructure for what we hope will be a, a quite robust market going forward. So all those things are underway right now. And on one level, you can say, well, geez, does anyone really care, right? Who pays attention to those outcomes? And I guess the answer is a lot of people do, right? And, you know, this is about getting kind of the the plumbing right uh, for key market infrastructure that will help guide climate finance flows for years to come. If we know anything, right, from markets is that they want certainty, they want clarity, they want long-term durability. And so the negotiated text around things like carbon markets and Article 6 really does have a bearing on how developers think about how to allocate capital, how financial institutions think about the robustness of, of carbon markets going forward. I think there's a lot riding on you know the next 24 hours. As it relates to climate finance more broadly, it's definitely the case that a decade ago, the vast majority of action and importance of a COP was centered around the question of how much public money could be mobilized for climate finance, how much taxpayer money from wealthy countries could be allocated, put forward, committed. And that was a sign of important progress. Now, that continues to be the case, but the private capital players have not stolen the show, but really moved onto the scene. And the amount of capital that private financial institutions are, are now able to mobilize, willing to mobilize on behalf of climate outcomes is seismically larger than it was a decade ago. And so the conversation on the outskirts and around the perimeter, around that kind of central negotiating uh, core of of government negotiators is equally important now to the broader climate outcomes that we all hope for. Because these companies on the periphery are announcing billion-dollar commitments here, $5 billion commitments there. And those numbers are far greater than what the public money we are able to mobilize now as a, as a set of developed countries is. So that's both good news and bad news, right? The good news is that we've got private capital on the scene arriving in force because private capital sees economic opportunity in this transition to a lower carbon economy, not just in wealthy countries, but also in the global south. But it also means that we are grappling as an international community with how to mobilize more public capital money at a time where a lot of wealthy country governments are fairly fiscally constrained. I think that's
0: a great segue into my next question. You had mentioned that this influx of private capital has been a relatively new addition to the climate finance scheme. And I'm wondering how stakeholders and and companies like Pollination overcome a lot of these challenges and break down the barriers to climate finance that, that we've seen previously. Do you think that this sort of influx of private capital is is a way to break down these barriers? And are there any other methods that you think could be employed to help further our climate action journey along here?
3: Well, I think it's a good question. I mean, start from the very clear data-driven premise that public capital alone cannot, there's simply nowhere near enough public capital to address climate change. And so the question is, how do you incentivize private capital to move more quickly in a direction that's consistent with climate objectives. Now, in the US, what did we do? We, um, and I was, you know, had a had a small hand in this during my two years at Treasury, where I, where I worked with the, closely with the leadership team there on, on the implementation of the Inflation Reduction Act. What did we do? We passed absolutely historic piece of legislation, Inflation Reduction Act, by the way, on the back of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the CHIPS Law, all three of which together, you know, are injecting hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of incentives to help private capital begin moving toward toward lower carbon solutions. Why did we do that? Because we felt that it was an economically advantageous thing to do. It is about A, addressing climate change, but B, driving economic growth in ways that are long-term, sustainable and to the benefit of the economy for literally decades to come. So pollination takes the view that this transition to a low carbon economy globally is an extraordinarily predictable, consequential and economically important thing for companies to take advantage of not be sitting in the backseat, but rather be driving the transition forward. That makes economic sense for a company. It makes fiscal sense and financial sense for a country. So the question then is, how do you prime that pump, right? What are the tools that the government has to help unlock private capital flows and get it moving more quickly? And there, within the context of the COP, at least, you hear a lot of conversations about blended finance. And what is blended finance? Blended finance is public money taking a share of risk in either a project, an investment vehicle, a fund, taking some form of some sliver of risk. That is sufficient to entice private capital to invest. And that's, of course, what we did when we initiated, you know, the renewable energy uh, industry or the renewable energy project development industry a decade and a half ago. We needed small amounts of public money to incentivize private capital to begin investing. And now we're seeing a similar, I guess, strategy, you could say, deployed in developing countries and across other sectors, agriculture like health and even in renewables. In riskier, lower income markets that still require a bit of kind of strategic de risking. So, a lot of talk around blended finance, de risking instruments and vehicles to help catalyze more private capital flows. I, th- I think that was a very, very strong theme in this COP with a lot of very interesting announcements made along the margins about new blended finance vehicles. Wonderful. And I'm curious,
0: you've had these conversations, you've sort of plotted out a bit of a map as to what it all means. Now, I guess the step of putting it all together, right? So I'm curious, what steps do you see pollination and and similar companies and governments taking post-cop to capitalize on this momentum into uh, 2024?
3: Yeah, I mean, so I think, you know, one of the things that's different now from, again, from 10 years ago at COPS is that when it was a government negotiating dominated set of meetings, corporations and financial institutions didn't pay too much attention, right? Kind of negotiators go off, do their thing for a week or two, stay up late, final couple of days, come out with an announcement and um, and kind of the world moves on. I think that changed with Paris. It has certainly changed ever since where the expectation of corporate action is higher, A, B, the incentives globally for private activity and private investment are much, much larger and much more broadly shared. So the U.S. obviously has its Inflation Reduction Act. Europe has its equivalent. Numerous other large jurisdictions are putting in place incentives to catalyze action in this regard. And so we as an advisory and investment firm, we look obviously to the signals and the plumbing, as it were, that is emerging from COP as a way of Helping guide our advisory work and our investment strategies. So, for example, this work on future of carbon market is critical to how we advise clients on how they should be thinking about the robustness and the durability of carbon markets going forward. But at the same time, there's a momentum that has developed on the back of all of this of coordinated climate positive policy across the world that we are driving our clients toward, and so. You know, it is the case that even if these negotiations were to fail, there's enough memory in the system now and enough inertia in the system in, in, a, in a positive way that we're going to see continued corporate action commitments uh, and activity for years and years to come. Because this is about not just doing the right thing for humanity. It is about making profit and about capitalizing on incentives that are baked into, into our economic system now. And so that that's the good news. When you have When you have a tailwinds, economic tailwinds, policy and fiscal tailwinds behind you, I think we're going to see quite some amazing action over the the years ahead. Let me just say, in the 15 months since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, you know, we've seen nearly $300 billion worth of investment into sectors that were targeted by the IRA. I think that far surpassed even the most optimistic expectations about what we would see in the first year. And that's just obviously in the first year. uh, When you would expect to see, see things kind of cranking up to speed at a relatively slow pace, we've seen an explosion of interest. So we're very optimistic about the direction of travel. Again, not just in the US, but in markets around the world. We're guiding our clients to take advantage of these opportunities as quickly as possible.
0: Absolutely. And to close this out, I think we have time for about one more question. That's also a great segue into this question. How can these companies potentially working with pollination across different sectors do the same and accelerate their climate action to really take advantage of of these resources? Is there something, a particular piece of advice that you might be able to offer them or potentially how they should be approaching this given the positive economic tailwinds? Yeah.
3: yeah so i'd say most companies begin this journey with us and probably with themselves from a climate risk lens you know they look out at the world and they say my goodness the the world's changing it doesn't doesn't take much to see that with for example in the us over 100 billion dollars last year in uninsured losses due to extreme weather events and, and those numbers ticking up every year it doesn't take long for people to see that something's going on here right a combination of literally physical observing, looking around to see what's happening in the world, a combination of stakeholder pressure and a combination of increasing regulatory requirements around climate risk are forcing companies to take a very hard look at their business and to determine how exposed they are to climate-related financial risk. That is the entry point for a lot of companies saying, okay, how exposed are we to climate change? What will happen to our business our supply chains are offtake agreements in the event that climate change continues to worsen or increase in the way that scientists expect. However, what has been a largely dominant, you know, a conversation about the risk side of the equation, I think very, very, very quickly can be broadened into a conversation about, okay, now that we understand where the risk is in our supply chain, how do we take advantage of opportunities to convert, to transition, to begin to change our business and evolve our business in a way that minimizes our risk? and maximizes our opportunity. And that was a hard conversation to have or a harder conversation to have four years ago, three years ago than it is today. Again, because of the incentives that are now in place in key jurisdictions around the world. We help our clients understand both the risk embedded in their current operations, but also the really significant opportunity that comes with helping lead a transition, which is not gonna be one year or two years long. It's really gonna be a generational transition. And that's the journey that we work with uh, and take our clients on. And we're seeing a significant uptick in interest for services related to helping both understand the risk side, but more importantly, the opportunity side of the, of the transition to a low-carbon economy.
0: Absolutely. John, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to this conversation. I think there's a lot to look forward to in terms of what's actually going to come out of this COP and all of the economic incentives that now exist to push ourselves toward uh, greater climate action. So once again, John Morton, everyone, and we will see you next time. Thanks Thanks again for tuning in and a special shout out to our guests, Champa Patel and John Morton. Be sure to check us out online at climategroup.org. Climate Group's 50 Shades of Green is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Google. Stay well, and we'll see you next time.